G'day, Osher Ginsberg here. Thanks for downloading the show. Hey, look, I know I said Emmanuel Kelly was going to be on the show on Monday, but I got a last-minute opportunity to interview um, Lance Piccioni about his incredible charity, Love Me, Love You, and a humongous cycling challenge he's undertaking, and it's this weekend. So I wanted to get the conversation. So we'll, we'll get to Emmanuel next week. So just a heads up about that if you're waiting for Emmanuel It'll be next week. You might hear an ad right now. If you do, thanks. You're helping me keep the lights on. If not, you'll hear Lance just drop some wisdom. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The life that I lived for such a long period of time, I hurt a lot of people with my choices that I was making, and I understand that. And I think that it was for me about bringing it back to make up for those choices and by sharing the story and getting it out there and, you know, sharing the connection, knowing the fact that the reason I started the foundation was to make sure that other people didn't go through the crap that I did. And however that works with people, I know the work that we've done at the foundation over this last eight years has changed many people's lives. Um, it's saved lives. I feel better every time I do share my story and that, you know, we use the power of storytelling a lot, but it's tiring. It is extremely tiring, and but I love what I do because I know the, the, the fact is that in the end of the day, yes, we don't save everybody's life, but that's not physically possible, right? But the fact is that we know that we change people's lives in a way that is positively better. That is former professional football player, cyclist, and CEO of the Love Me, Love You Foundation, Lance Piccioni, and this is Better Than Yesterday. G'day, I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for joining me today. This is Better Than Yesterday, a bi-weekly podcast where twice a week, I, oh, actually three times a week now, I hope to try to help you make today better than yesterday. That's it. Something that you hear on this show will help you make today better than yesterday. That's a guarantee. Been here since 2013. Uh, Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm here with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. As I mentioned earlier, I did say Emmanuel Kelly was going to be on the show this week, but... I got the opportunity to interview Lance Piccioni ahead of his um, Everesting Challenge, which I'll tell you about in a second, and I wanted to make sure I got it up and got it to air before uh, he attempted that because uh, he deserves all the support he can get. And as well, you know, it's in support of a, a charity ride I myself am doing this weekend, which I'll, I'll tell you a bit more about in a moment. If you've never listened to the show before, I'm Osher. I'm a TV host. I'm an author. I'm a podcaster. I ride bicycles. I lift heavy things. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm the father, I guess, step, I don't know. What do you call it? We have two cavoodles who have actual names, but we call them Licky and Barky. <laughs> and, um, and I've finished Ted Lasso and I feel happy and sad at the same time. If you need to get in touch with me, super easy. Send us your email at gmail.com. That's where you can find me. 
I'd love to hear from you. Let me tell you about my guest today. Lance Piccioni is a former AFL football player. Uh, he played with Adelaide uh, for two years and he played for five years for Hawthorne, played 58 games with Hawthorne. His father was a former professional soccer player in Australia and uh, Lance went on to to play AFL, which for reasons he'll, he'll go into. Lance goes into great detail in this conversation about the, the whirlpool that he fell into of drugs and alcohol uh, to cope with the stresses that he was dealing with in his life to a point that led to him being in such a a horrible, horrible, horrible place. Um, This is the part of the show where I tell you we're going to talk about suicidality. So if you need to talk to someone, I would recommend Lifeline 131114. If you you need to talk to someone in a hurry, if not, talk to your GP. It starts with a conversation with your GP and you may get referred to a, a psychologist, which is okay, and a psychiatrist, which is also okay. Because as I've said many, many times before, you can't think your way out of a problem brain using the same brain that needs help. It just doesn't work like that. Yeah, you kind of need outside help. And that's what Lance is all about. I absolutely adored speaking with Lance. He's a fascinating guy. He's a he's intensely passionate about helping people. He absolutely saw the edge of the abyss and he found his way back. And his mission in life is to guide others back from that edge. lovemeloveyou.org.au is where you can go to find out more about the uh, foundation that Lance is a CEO of, a foundation that runs a bunch of you know, workshops and programs for people to you know, basically help one-on-one peer support and mental health first aid. And they're, they're doing really, really great work, such great work, in fact, that I am very, very proudly riding on the 31st on Halloween. I'm going to do a ride on Zwift. It's, an, it's a virtual ride. So if there's absolutely anyone in your life that has their bike hooked up to Zwift or wants to come and ride a virtual ride with me, Sunday, the 31st of October, uh, just come and jump on the ride. It's going to be great. I'm going to be live streaming it on Twitch. Uh, Hot Dub Time Machine is going to be my DJ. I'm going to have special guests. We're going to spend about two hours. Even if you don't ride, just come and join me on the Twitch stream. It's going to be a shitload of fun. We're going to have a great time. There's two rides. There's a 50K, which you'll probably ride. You know, it might be super intense, but it'll, you know, you'll you'll know that you you rode. Uh, And there's a 20K, which is just a... just a casual roll the legs over. Um, but it's just something you can do while you enjoy the conversation that's happening on the Twitch stream. For more details, there's a there's a link in my Instagram. And uh, just keep an eye on my Instagram. I'll, I'll put up all the all the details about the you know how to join the ride and how to be a part of it. If you want to support me and help me raise funds for Love Me, Love You, I never ask you to help me raise funds. You know, I ask you to donate. I guess, no, it's not true. I haven't asked you to donate to anything since uh, FRRR during all the Black Summer bushfires. So I'm, I'm really hoping that if you have a couple of spare bucks, just pop to my Instagram profile. You'll find the link in the bio there. And if you throw a few bucks the way of love me, love you, you'll really help the work they're doing. If you watch the documentary that I was a part of making that was on SBS, it was all about suicide prevention. And that is absolutely what love me, love you do. They are on the ground, boots on the ground, providing really powerful and really effective um, mental health interventions to people in need. And um, I'd really love you to help them out. Lance is doing a huge challenge to raise money the day before on the 30th of October as part of the Ride With Me weekend. It runs across essentially Melbourne Cup weekend. Lance is doing a thing called Everesting, which is riding your bicycle the equivalent vertical metres of Mount Everest. So just imagine that if you live on a, a hill, you'll understand, you remember hill ratios from, from maths in high school. So if the bottom of the hill is, you know, at sea level and the top of the hill is 10 metres above sea level and it's 100 metres long, that's a one in 10, all right? So for every 100 metres you ride, you've gone up 10 metres. That's a 10% grade. You know, you understand what I'm saying? That's a pretty hefty hill. That's a good hill. So imagine that, imagine that, uh, 800 and 900 times. Okay. That's what Lance is doing. <laughs> it's going to take him about 14 hours and um, he's raising money for lovemeloveyou.org.au. So we'll, we'll get right into that. Like I said, I would love you to come and join me on the ride on Halloween. Just keep an eye on my socials. I'll post more details about that, but it's going to be on Zwift on Halloween, 11 a.m. Eastern Summer Daylight Saving Sydney time. 
So whatever that is, wherever you are in NT, Queensland and South Australia, or WA, anywhere that's not New South Wales and Victoria, let's be honest, Hobart. Oh, God damn it, saving. Oh, I'm so scattered this afternoon. Sorry, I just trained and my head's all over the place. Um, so without further ado and more confusion from me, enjoy this conversation with Lance Pacioni. How are you today, Lance? You okay? Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah? Yeah, it's all good. Yeah, lots good, mate. I've been up and training, a little bit of homeschool, and um, here I am, and then I've got to do some more training after this. So, uh, are, you tra- right. are you training for anything? I'm do- I'm part of uh, next weekend, I'm doing a, uh, I'm doing a virtual Everest. Yeah. So uh, the last sort of three months has been a pretty berserk sort of training program, working through that. Three o'clock, four o'clock mornings start sort of stuff. Yeah, so in the garage because once we haven't been at them, we've been able to ride outside past 5Ks or 15Ks because of recently and now this week is sort of unleashed. But So, yeah, so virtual Everest is uh, what it is. It's 48,846. 48,846. Nine reps up the Alp just to, uh, just to make right. sure. So just for people who have never ridden a, a bicycle, there's a couple of landmark milestones for bicycle riding. There's the Century. Yeah. Which is a hundred miles, hundred and seventy-one kilometers. Yep. Uh, there's the metric ton, which yep. is a hundred k's, and then there's the Everest, which is the equivalent of riding your bicycle up Mount Everest, which is, as uh, Lance mentioned, uh, over nearly nine thousand vertical meters, which is a yeah. lot of climbing. Yeah. Good times, good times. <laughs> it's a, it's interesting one. Like you know, many people have tried it and failed and given up, but many people have done it as well right so it's uh, one of those things you took off a list and i've been told many times mate that, uh, that i'm an idiot and stupid for doing it um and what am i thinking because i only took up cycling uh, a couple of years ago and i'm built like a fridge so it actually works better for me to do a virtual everest than actually do a proper one so it's going all right i'm looking forward to it actually Athletics is is not nothing new to you. You've you've had a, a professional football career, and your father before you was a you know as a professional soccer player. Do you remember? As yeah. a, do you remember as a kid going to see your dad play? He represented Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember? So he he was a soccer guru seventy nine eighty around that sort of time. Um, wow. And I was born in nineteen eighty, so long time ago. And then it was. Um, I remember him playing. I remember going to the soccer. I don't really. I don't remember watching. Like as in actually him playing and doing what is the things, but you remember the little things of um, and we keep talking about the the culture around it was more about what the food was and the food that we used to go and get, and it used to be big chivapji rolls, chivapji and cabbage rolls, and that was the thing that I remember from it. But you know he played for a long time and doesn't talk about it a lot, but he a very humble man and usually humble man and how it goes about it, but can. Uh, can shoot you down if you're trying to talk yourself up. He can uh, he can bring out the uh, the articles and all the uh, all that sort of stuff to uh, make sure that you you know that he was a superstar, right? And it still is. So that's so cool, man. That's so with that mindset. Yeah. Do you like when you were little? Would you know was keeping active a part of what it was to go and play with dad? Yeah, yeah, a huge part. Like we started playing basketball. I started playing basketball when I was like four years of age, playing under eights mixed basketball with a volleyball on a on an eight foot ring. And mum and dad were, were hugely in, into that and, and making sauce, you know, for my brother and my sister and I. That's, um, you know, sport, using the, the, the vehicle of sport to be connected and, you know, part of the communities and all that sort of stuff. But we loved it. We loved everything about any type of sport. It had a ball, nothing to do with rackets or bats or anything like that. That wasn't our thing because it became too, uh, too aggressive, probably. So balls were our thing. And then, um, so basketball, but we didn't play soccer growing up. And purely is based around the, the culture. The culture back then when so as a in the eighties, my brother played and played for a couple of years in under tens and twelves, that sort of space, under tens. But he was getting like abused and all that sort of stuff from other parents and supporters and all that sort of stuff as an under ten because of my dad and who he was. And and dad just said, No, nah, this is not um this is not how we're gonna go about it. Which is unbelievable because people always say, Did you, why, "Why didn't you play soccer?" And it was pretty much because it wasn't allowed, just because of the culture that was around it. So we we didn't do that. And then we said basketball. And then I started a new school in grade six, and the guys, the boys, introduced me to footy, and and that became the thing. 
So dad and I still have the debate over footy versus soccer <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the contact versus the non-contact contact sport sort of thing. Now goal goes about it and skill levels and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, it's uh, interesting conversations uh, yeah. that it is. But I think it's about, um, you know, the driving that work ethic and understanding of what it takes to achieve something was what dad really sort of instilled into us. It's pretty epic that your father soccer meant so much to your dad. Yeah. But it didn't mean so much that what I want my kids to get out of sport is more important than the sport they play. So kids, you're not going to play this one yeah. because that that's a huge thing for a dad huge. to do. Huge. I mean, no more yeah, even more now understanding that as a as a parent myself, uh, looking at what that is for my kids. Like even dad, like when he was playing soccer here, he was offered so many contracts on that sort of stuff to go back to Europe and, and play. But he wanted to bring his family up in Australia because of the opportunities and freedoms and choices that we all have that, you know, that everyone's fighting against at the moment. But working through that process to say, okay, well, this is what's more important for my kids is to, to enjoy what they are doing and to drive themselves to an ability to do what they want to do. And if it's music or dramas or acting or whatever, whatever it is. And sport was our, was our thing. You know, as I said, that was a, and we love sport, and we, we we know the vehicle. As I said before, about the power of playing playing sport and, and being around other people while doing it. You, you started playing professional football right out of high school, like you were eighteen. Yeah. You straight into it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. that's a goal, Crazy. like like a dream for some kids. And you was like, did it? Did it ever seem like there would be any other thing that you would do? Not really. Oh, I had this conversation the other day. I so I got, I. Made my debut round one, nineteen ninety eight, and I was 17, 17 and eight months. Far out! So my eldest is older than that right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that was the world, right? And like I started having conversations with AFL clubs uh, when I was thirteen. Wow! But that was my world, and 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 someone said, you know, was it the dream and all that sort of stuff. It, it became an expectation that I was always going to play. You know, I was sort of state captain and winning national awards and all that sort of stuff through the junior um, days. And it was just that expectation of not so much if, but when. And, and there's a difference between getting drafted because so many people get drafted and in the AFL system, you're lucky if you get a second contract. Right? And then, you know, the average AFL career is two and a half years. Fire. So uh, for every person that gets drafted, right? So you talk about, and that's probably uh, gone up a bit because blokes like Sean Burgoyne has played for 48 years. Um, so it's probably increased that average. But, it, you know, the, the dream that it was, the, the reality versus the dreams are a lot different. You know, once you get there and, and the work and effort and discipline, all that sort of stuff that is needed to get the best out of yourself and be supported to do it. Man, I can't imagine. I was 17 when I started working in the world and I started as a roadie. So I'm fresh out of <laughs> high school. I'm 17 and a half and I'm working with road-hardened men in their 30s <laughs> that drink hard. And I'm like this kind of wide-eyed high school kid and suddenly I'm in a van with dudes. who. <laughs> Yeah. What was yeah, that like yeah, for you? Suddenly, been around this culture of like, well, now you are, you know, you might be a rookie, but this is what we do. This is what we do as men. This is how we party, and this is how how we handle problems. I firmly entrenched myself in that sort of uh, culture really quickly, and you had no choice. You know, I got drafted to Adelaide um, of all places uh, as a seventeen-year-old to go to, um, which is an interesting place to sit in itself. But I shared a locker right next to a bloke called Darren Jarman. He's as manly as you'll get um, and probably didn't fit the stereotypical uh, professional athlete sort of body and, and ways of doing things, but was an unbelievably skillful man. And, you know, blokes like Mark Marcusciuto and Sean Rand and Andrew McLeod and sort of got right into it and living that lifestyle because when I first got drafted, it wasn't so much the young man's game. It was you had to be a seasoned, hardened man person to play footy, and that was in, at, that, at that level. For me, I was a... a early developer so I was sort of I was a man child so I, I was fully grown at you know 11 and a half 12 years of age right so it's and then working into that it's just a crazy world of understanding the difference now it's, yeah as I said growing up and seeing what it's about how different people management is 
right? And, and the different sort of personalities and all that sort of stuff that come out and, and ability to do that. But it was the old days was you worked hard, you partied hard, and that was the world. And even from a, from an AFL position, um, these guys, are, they trained as hard as possible. They played hard on field and, and off field. And you had no choice but pretty much to, to be a part of that as well. And when it came to, you know, obviously now your focus is on the charity Love Me, Love You and yep. a healthy mental space. I mean, people call it mental health, but a, a, a or mental fitness yep. or a healthy mental space is dealing with adversity, dealing with problems. When you were when you were in that, how did you see guys dealing with problems? An obvious one would be you trained so hard, you trained so hard, and you you know you you got beaten by one behind, you're down and you lose the game. Like how did you see guys dealing with disappointment, dealing with things that didn't go their way? You just, well, as a young person, you didn't look at it. You're just like, oh, that's that, that was footy, that was game, bang, you lost, you get on with it and you move forward. You understand different levels of disappointment. But as a young person, you, you think you're invincible. Losing doesn't come into your mind, uh, you know, sort of dealing with adversity like that because it's the same thing as about – Working through those different experiences creates that experience of understanding how you work, work through it. So, you know, losses and challenges and injuries and politics that comes with footy or, you know, life that comes with social expectations and that sort of stuff. As you're going through, it's creating a position of being able to understand how you talk through those positions because back in the late 90s, early 2000s, as the culture around football clubs, you didn't talk about things. You, you, you didn't. And that was, you, you couldn't. Because if you did, you may as well just straight, walk out straight back out the door. And, and which was just, you know, for a lot of people, that's all they knew. So they dealt with that and they moved forward and they kept going forward. But as, as a young person coming through, I'm not understanding that because we as a family, we, we're, we're very open, you know, from when I was growing up, very open about talking yeah, more to my mum sort of thing, uh, you know, that sort of motherly figure talking about the experiences and, and feeling that. Not so much with dad, um, but that was the culture. Right? Yeah, and, and different guys worked through adversity differently um, and some sort of sank their, diverse, their adversity challenges at the bottom of a bottle. Some got themselves hardcore into training and do that sort of stuff. And, but, uh, you know, it's, as a young person, I took the way of alcohol to deal with that adversity sort of stuff, which became a real big challenge in my life. And, you know, a lot of regrets come with the choices that I made with that when I was in Adelaide. You know, and being treated like a king. Right? When I got drafted to Adelaide, three-team town, it's all happening. There's not much else happening in Adelaide. And you were just treated like a king. You could do whatever you wanted, wherever you wanted, to whoever you wanted. And, and you weren't kept accountable for those choices. Um, and working through that, you know, I was waking up in the waking up on the park benches in the middle of Rundle Mall, uh, you know, after passing out from some big nights of drinking and that sort of stuff. And that was just those were the choices that I had made. Uh, and that was the escape that I was trying to live, pretty much. And that sort of took its toll. And it took its toll really hard. And you know, sort of then you see it's usually too late before you appreciate what that is. Um, and sort of made that choice by that time um, to say goodbye to Adelaide and come back to Hawthorne, which was awesome. <laughs> You're a, a young man doing that. You're like 19, 20 years old. It's not uncommon behaviour for someone in, who's 19 and 20 who's just kind of figuring out, well, this much vodka is fun, this much vodka means I don't remember what happened. So it's not uncommon for people to do that. But you had this, this profile where... Yeah. Yeah, I, I lived in Adelaide in 98. I worked at SAFM at the time, and I know what you're saying. I worked in radio when I rarely paid for dinner. You know, I know what you're talking about. I know exactly. The the, the Crows Port, they, they were just, you You knew you wouldn't have paid for a beer for years. You know, it's just. Oh, man, that was a lifestyle I love. Yeah. But it, it's, I take a lot of learnings from it now. Yeah. Right. You know, it's always the, the whole the hindsight thing. But, um, you know, if I had to change things, could have things been differently? Could my career had worked out differently? It's probably a good thing that I got out of Adelaide after two years. Um, yeah. Because, you know, I enjoyed the experience, but my career wasn't going anywhere. There had become politics involved with, uh, like, coaching levels and management. I, I need to be back with my family. My mental health issues, 
that had really escalated to a point. When I say mental health issues, not knowing the resource and the education and the awareness around it because undiagnosable symptoms and diagnosis, but I needed to be with my family because I knew that at that stage, if I didn't get back to what made me who I was at that time, my life could have been could have been done because it's not about the, the drinking, but it's the choices that come with that, right? You know, drink driving, all those sorts of things because you think you're invincible, you know, and those sort of choices could be fatal when you think about it. Oh, mate, I, I tell people all the time that I have an allergy to alcohol. Uh, <laughs> if I drink, I break out and fuck with. That's my joke. But the, the truth is, like, I, the way I talk about it is that if you have a kid with a peanut allergy, you wouldn't even give him the smallest amount of peanut. You wouldn't give him a trace element of peanut, you know. There's some kombucha I can't drink because it has a tiny little yeah, bit of alcohol yeah. in it, right? But what happens yeah. if I oh, I have an allergic reaction? If I have even the smallest amount of alcohol, it changes how much I think is a good idea to drink, what I think is right and wrong, what's a good idea to do next, my moral compass. It complete, uh, that's my allergic reaction. It changes who I am and how I yeah. feel about things. And the choices I make yeah. in that space are choices that I am grateful that I now no longer make. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like same thing. Like I, I don't drink, and the problem that we have with in our society now that when you say you don't drink, it becomes a um, you get judged. Right? What do you mean you don't drink? What, 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 we can't we can't have a couple of beers. I don't want to. I don't. I don't need to. I don't need that for me. My wife's not a, uh, doesn't drink either, so that makes it easier again to work through that narrative. But uh, like I don't drink because, as I said, you, the choices that you make it blocks your filter. So I believe it blocks your filter to make more positive choices than not. Hundred percent. You know the the guys that get the uh, the coverage in the bottle and all that sort of stuff, and they become more sort of loose and they're allowed to sort of do that sort of thing. But for me, it doesn't work. And it's the same thing for you. It, it just doesn't work for me. I recently had a I went to have a beer. I was, you know, I had a great week and everything was going well and you know, and I had a beer in the fridge from a, a parcel that. One of those grazing boxes that someone sent to us. Oh, yeah, and yeah. I, I thought, I'll, I'll, have, I'll see what this is about again, right? So I've been drinking for a long, long time and I had a mouthful and it was just, I, I felt like I was just going to crumble back into the couch and uh, not come back out again. I just didn't like it, didn't enjoy it. And, and they said that there's social expectations because then people sort of uh, go, okay, well, we can't really invite them to, to the pub or to dinner or this sort of thing because. I want, to, I want to sit back and have a couple of bottles of wine and Lance is going to sit across from me and have his water all night. How does that make me feel, you know, for that person? So it's, it's an interesting experience when you start talking like that because it, uh, it, it does create sort of segregation in, in the ways you go about and I understand the culture and people's needs that they do their certain things and that's fine. You've got your own choices. I make my own choices for me and my family um, and that's all that matters for me. When you've been using to deal with problems, when you've been using as a way of dealing with whatever mental things going on with you, you mm. kind of don't notice. When you suddenly stop using, and this is my experience, it was like what I've heard people talk about, I came off my meds and everything went to shit. What was it like trying to deal with the dis discomfort, deal with uncomfortable things, deal with just the problems of life without alcohol there to anesthetize it? Well, alcohol was replaced by drugs, so that was another level of trying to deal with things, and that was the world, like, I did it a couple of years when I was at Hawthorne. You know, I was sort of totally off alcohol and, you know, I was fairly entrenched in my health and my fitness and my training and lots of stuff and right, making right choices and doing all those good things and then certain issues come up and back on the wagon sort of thing. And then, as I said, replaced it with, with, with drugs and you want to talk about something that creates a different filter in your choices and making choices. For six to seven years, I was uh, that was my world. And you talk about trying to deal with adversity. You, you don't deal with anything when you're when you're on the gear. You, you're invincible to everything. And people go, "Oh, what about when you come down?" Well, you don't come down. You keep going up. You keep taking something. It was, you know, for said for a long period of time. I started taking gear when I was back in when I was playing at North Melbourne. You know, on weekends doing that sort of thing. That was my lifestyle. Um, and I don't really remember that last year at North Melbourne when I was playing there, which is quite concerning that sort of hazy lifestyle that I was living. And then, yeah, so, then the, so the next five, six years after that, you know, substances was uh, was just normal. That was the thing. Like, let's, you got something? Let's go. Uh, and that was an everyday thing. But I was functioning. 
And this is a problem where we have you know, through alcohol, through gear, through substances, through mental illness. So people, when they talk about the fact that you're still functioning, they don't think anything is wrong. But it, we know that there's usually not too many positive ways or outcomes that come from uh, your lifestyle if, if you're going down that track. And then once it cleared, the three months after I went cold turkey on the substances was help. It was absolute help just because one, and people think this is, is a crazy, like negative, but I actually started having thoughts, right? I actually had, there was some clear thinking and there was, there was just, oh, the mind just going everywhere and it just couldn't, I couldn't process it because it, it had been so numb for so long and I couldn't process it and I couldn't sleep. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't, didn't understand how to function. And then it just sort of went. And it just day by day, it just sort of got better and, and being able to sort of open your mind up to different uh, opportunities and being and doing and, and who you're doing that with. The people that I did things with back in the day, not bad people. <laughs> people just make, we all make poor choices uh, for certain things that we do in our life and you move on. And, you know, I just disconnected from a lot of those people from that period of time. A lot of them, talking about like 95% of them. And, you know, open yourself up to open opportunities of, of doing. And understanding what you do for yourself, and, and what is the uh, what is the legacy you want to leave on your day. And I think this is the biggest thing that I've learned. It's what footprint do you want? What impression do you want to leave on your day? It's you know people just sort of get stuck in the rut of life and keep doing and this, and then they turn to alcohol, they turn to drugs, they turn to being promiscuous, they turn to all these sorts of things to try and fill a hole of of not feeling any connection in their day, or, or why they go about certain things. You know, and I'm coming up ten years. 10 years sober from the substances, as I said, alcohol, you know, we don't even have alcohol in our house. We don't, uh, you know, don't go out to sort of pubs or anything like that. I'm, I'm very uncomfortable in those situations. But the choices that I make are for what I want to do, from, not just for me, but um, for my family, which are the most important things in my life. You were in your early 30s when you decided, you made the choice to no longer drink and use. Yeah. People ask me about my my moment, and I'm like, look, there wasn't a moment. There was just a day I woke up when yeah. I just went, I just can't fucking do that again because it's the same every time. It is, it's never different, and I want something different in my life. That was it. It wasn't like driven out of some gigantic, thankfully, I know people who have had to get sober after they've woken up with a cop, you know, putting their head in the car yeah. window going, you've just fucking hit someone. They just woke walk up out of a blackout in a car, you know, and that yeah. was the catalyst. I'm, I'm lucky that that didn't happen to me. It well and truly could have. But it was just, yeah. I just woke up one morning and I just can't, fuck, I just can't fucking do it again because it's the same every fucking time. Was it like that for you? Was it just a moment where you're like, I'm sick of this? Uh, it was a series of moments and experiences. Uh, and I'm talking about a series over probably five years. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, and it all just went, okay, oh, that's, this is it. You know, I had my last um, suicide attempt in, it's actually coming up uh, next week will be my 10th anniversary wow. uh, my last suicide attempt. Jesus, man. So that's a bit of a wake-up call yeah. uh, to life. You know, I, I was sitting on a roof of the place I was living at, and, and I talk about the suicide attempt. We lived in a, in a big sort of party house you know, for, at that time and, you know, sort of three levels up and sitting on there during the day, high as a kite for hours and on end, just thinking this this is it. And somehow I got off and people ask why I got off. I don't, I don't know. There's no reason. There's, I just, I just did got down and went inside and smoked more joints and all that sort of stuff to say, okay, well, let's sort of, we'll worry about this tomorrow sort of thing. And woke up feeling like absolute crap. And my, my wife now who was my girlfriend at the time just had a general conversation with me to say what's going on. No, you know, I, I I was scared at the time, I, you know, because genuinely I I hadn't slept for a few days, but I I hid that, um, and you know nobody sort of sort of realised that, sort of you can sort of wake yourself through actually fake sleeping sort of thing, um, you sort of become pretty good at that, and I didn't recognise myself in the mirror, like I just genuinely I I looked like absolute shit. It was just the eyes were so sunken, the skin was terrible. I just my vision was blurry. It was just like, oh well. I said to my wife, you know, that's I, I need some help. Like this is not good. Um, 
and this was in October, end of October, I, I finally then saw my doctor um, who I had a good relationship with probably about a month later. And then we started that plan. It was like, so a range of different psychologists, psychologists weren't doing shit for me because it's just fluffing all the things about. And you know, I rocked up to my first psychology session stoned, which is not a probably a good idea. And then okay, was the choices I had to make, moved out of the house and saw a psychiatrist at the Melbourne Clinic down here, which is a, is a pretty renowned sort of drug and psychiatry clinic down here. And just said, okay, this is the choice I need to make and went cold turkey and that was it, you know, and started putting that stuff in. And, uh, you know, I, I was reading a lot of Buddhism books at the time. I'm not a, not a Buddhist. I'm not I'm not like, a, you know, beast. I'm not floating around wearing fisherman pants and all that sort of stuff. That's not my world. But I, I, I was reading that to try and research the fact that what can, what can you do? What yeah, can yeah. I do for myself? And yeah. that became my world. And, you know, getting right into that and journaling a lot. And to show every journal much about oh, I was – I was just sitting in cafes just for hours on end throughout the days, just writing, just writing down everything that was going on, right from my earliest memories, from the good to the bads, everything that has come with it. And working through that process for me, I, I, I believe saved my life because we and my psychiatrist said to me, he, I remember saying, he goes, the problem that we have with, with drugs and, and mental illness is that people want to treat the effect, right? If you treat the effect, you're going to relapse and you're going to be back here again and again and again. What's the, what's the cause? What, why are we here? Why are you in this position? And then putting it back and, and acknowledging that because um, and that's the hardest thing. People people don't acknowledge their shit, right? <laughs> and if you don't acknowledge your shit, it, it becomes your issue uh, and your challenge and you're sort of not dealing with it. And it's... um. You sweep it under the rug and you keep put it, putting it away, keep putting it away because you, you sort of don't want to open yourself up to the vulnerabilities of, of dealing with it. And, you know, there's many days that I was, you know, sitting on park benches crying and all that sort of stuff and realising what my world had become and realising the fact that, you know, if I had have, had have jumped off or I had have gone back and smoked more pipes and taken more pills and all that sort of stuff and jumped in a car or whatever it might have been, Reality is an amazing thing um, if you allow yourself to be a part of it. It's um, that's it's nuts. But I'm so I'm so grateful to hear that you were able to have that moment, have that moment of clarity that you know to to see that you needed help. And I'm also really grateful for the woman that's now your wife that was she was able to communicate to you in a in a way because. I'm sure she wasn't the first person that had mentioned this is a problem, um, but she was clearly able to cut through. She was clearly clearly able to find a way to speak to you with kindness and, and compassion and empathy. Which is really bizarre, right? Yeah, it is, right? Because, because uh, you know, speaking about it now, because you know, she's heard me talk many times about the experience, and she's like, oh, I don't really remember having that conversation with you. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. Um, yeah. Well, you did. Well, that's my side of it because there's always three sides to the story, right? Yeah. So it's my side, your side, and what actually happened. So, what role did she play in your your journey to get from where you were to where you wanted to be? Huge role, huge role. Just, I think it was um, just a person to be opening doors, opening the doors to opportunities of things that can happen in your life. There was no pushing, there was no demanding. Just a person, just to, that I could be myself with whatever I need to be at that time. You know, my, my wife was a most beautiful, caring, empathetic person you'll ever meet in your life who comes without judgment. There's no bias. There's no nothing with her that complicates. There's no, there's no complications. And I think that we come in a world that life's complicated and it's complicated because people make it complicated. <laughs> so in terms of our social connections and all the things that go with it, and everyone wants to bitch and moan and, and you know, whinge about something and complain about something or cause drama. But there's no drama with my wife. She is just what she is and she dislikes her people. You know, she, she has strong family, you know, which is, I think is a big connection that we have and still have to today is, you know, we come from strong families in terms of our relationships in there, uh, which we're very lucky to have, which I know a lot of people don't have, but we sort of carry that through. We, we make sure that us now as a family, we, we understand who we are as people. Uh, didn't try to change. We, when people get into relationships, right, and they go into a relationship and they go, oh, I'm going to change you for what I want you to be, <laughs> which, come on, right? 
and then you're sort of stuck in a position in your relationship, you know, ten years down the track with a person that you you you're not yourself, and you're with a person that's like, who the hell is this? Right? Um, you wake up one morning, and then you're like, oh jeez, you're still here. But <laughs> she wasn't trying to change me. I'm not trying to change her. We do our thing, and we have like I have my life. We have she has her life, and we have our life together. And I think that's really sort of uh, trying to find that balance, which does take time. That's a that's a beautiful thing. I'm really happy for you, mate. There's a point where yeah. you, you started understanding that you, oh, you're a person of profile. You're, you know, you've had some high profile moments where the choices you'd been making, the public were aware of some of those choices you'd been making. What did yeah. it mean to you to start doing public things basically in the opposite direction, like the time you walked from Sydney to Melbourne? What did it mean <laughs> to you to start doing big public displays of, I'm doing something different now? Yeah, yeah, it's berserk. Like it's the crazy lifestyle choices of things that I was doing and being like as much as my life is public, I'm actually quite private. I'm, I'm extremely private in, in who I am and how I go about it. You know, I'm very public, right? Does it make sense? Like, you know, I understand. You know, the, the walk from Sydney to Melbourne wasn't for anybody else but for me. And, and I say that in the nicest way because I nearly lost my leg um, a couple of months before um, my last suicide attempt. I had a ruptured patella off the bone in my kneecap and kneecap was halfway floating up my leg. I had infections from the operation, all that sort of stuff. Walking became my thing. And I set myself a challenge to do this. And the attachment that it came with uh, starting the foundation was something that I, I did because the life that I lived for such a long period of time, I made some choices and I, and I, heard, I, I did. I hurt a lot of people with my choices that I was making and I understand that and I think that it was for me about bringing it back to make up for those choices and by sharing the story and getting it out there and walking from Sydney to Melbourne was fun but it was not something that I suggest people do again because it's berserk and there's some boring parts of that that walk anyway you know sharing the connection knowing the fact that the reason I started the foundation was to make sure that other people didn't go through the crap that I did and however that works with people, I know the work that we've done at the foundation over this last eight years, eight and a half, coming up nine years, has changed many people's lives. Um, it's saved lives, but there's also people that have slipped through the gaps. You know, it's driving that connection to be public with what you do. People think it's a great lifestyle, but it's it's hard. It's, it's extremely hard. I feel better. Every time I do share my story and that, you know, we use the power of storytelling a lot, but it's tiring. It is extremely tiring. And but I love what I do because I know that the, the fact is that in the end of the day, yes, we don't save everybody's life, but that's not physically possible, right? But the fact is that we know that we change people's lives in a way that is positively better. So there's more positive mental health outcomes that come from what we do at Love Me, Love You. And, uh, and everyone's different in how they interpret that and the experiences that come with it. But what it's done for me is actually uh, opened up the opportunity of conversation with my six-year-old son, <laughs> which is, you know, we talked about legacy and footprints that you want to leave on your world um, before. But, you know, I asked my, my six-year-old son, Alexander, do you know what daddy does? He goes, yeah, 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 guys, love me, love you. It's, um, you. You make people feel better that are sad. And... And then that opens a conversation with him, right? And it's awesome. My my younger son, my three and a half year old Lenny, who um obviously doesn't get it, but he, he says, "Love me, love you." Like you know, they, that's what he do, Dad. Love me, love you. Awesome. And, and seeing that sort of um, ability to have those conversations, because you know, as a growing up, as a kid, I I wouldn't have been able to have those conversations with my dad because that's not the world that we lived in. So generalising and normalising the very process to do it is the the vision, right? It's normalising yeah. the process, normalising the language, by doing things like this. Just a moment away from the chat with Lance Piccioni to remind you once again that you can join me on a ride to raise money and raise awareness for Love Me, Love You. It's going to happen on Halloween on the 31st of October. It's a Sunday. 
uh, from 11 a.m. There's two rides, there's a 50K and there's a 20K. The 50K is going to be a little bit more intense. The 20K is just a, a casual. But it's just the idea is to get on, roll the legs over. Even if you don't want to get on a bike, I'll be on Twitch streaming the ride. Hot Dub Time Machine is going to be our DJ. Going to have special guests. We're going to be crossing to people, chatting with people over a Zoom call. It's going to be pretty fun. And I, I really hope you can join me. If you'd like to support me on that ride, I'm raising funds in my Instagram profile. You'll find a, a link in my bio. Uh, and of course, Lance Piccioni is Everesting the day before. I don't know how he's going to back up and turn around and do it again. But Lance's Instagram is L A N C E underscore P I C I. O-A-N-E, and that's where you can support him riding his bicycle up Mount Everest virtually from his garage. It's going to be pretty sick. All right, you might hear an ad here. If you do, thank you. If not, we're back to the show. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So the, the programs that Love Me, Love You Run are based on your own yep. experience. How did you go about developing these? Not everyone's going to be able to walk from Sydney to Melbourne and come to be with the rhythm and the breathing and the physicality and the time to think. How do you take what you went through and put it into a, a program? Oh, many ways. It's been a roller coaster of working through that. There's uh, been a number of people that have been engaged with us. Uh, the initial person that uh, helped us design the programming that we were doing originally was a lady called Maddie Clements, who is um, now the director of wellbeing for the Australian Institute of Sport. So, probably as good as you'll get in the space, right? And is still a mentor of mine and an amazing lady. So, working through that, so I was, you know, as I said, from that the Buddhism reading and all the things that I was doing, I had my big list. And I went into the I remember walking into the meeting with her after a, a few meetings, and I said, "Oh." Okay, this is what I want. And I had like 65 topics. <laughs> Write me a program. <laughs> and she's like, oh, yeah. So this 65 topics, what you've got, is actually probably about 15 years' work. Is that okay? Cool. All right, let's bring it back and then see what that is. And so we developed a whole range of different programs there. And that sort of obviously evolved over time and working through what that is. And you know, the, the big programs, we, we do two main ones, right? And it's about, uh, we do the storytelling component. So the general awareness, you know, get in there, talk about what your experiences are, but then what can people do to understand having a more positive mental health journey than not? Okay. And that's the big one that we, a lot of stuff that we do and a lot of other people do. And it's great awareness and great work. But our big one that we do is, is a peer to peer support training program and it's called Welfare Warrior. And we believe it's like a mental health first aid. It's like that, um, but we believe it's about more being more accessible with language and time and, and effort and sort of working or walking away from that program going, I can actually put that this into play um, without being confused with it all. And then we deliver that to so youth uh, right through to adults and, and everyone else. And, you know, as I said, it evolves over time and that's something we're very proud of and how that works. 
but a big one that we're really proud of and, and you know I think for us is a difference is about what we call our bridge the gap because having been through it before I show you would understand the uh, seeking a mental health service or seeking help and support for a higher service even today you're a minimum two to four month waiting list if you're lucky yeah. if you're lucky and when shit hits the fan you can't wait two to four months Fuck no. you can't wait lucky. two hours so yeah so we um apart from lifeline and the crisis services and all that sort of stuff that go through we have a thing called support pathway and what that does is actually triage with people and enables people to have check-ins and counselling services um, in a timely manner so that they don't slip through the gap. Mm. Um, and more and more people, we're working with governments and other organisations to say, okay, how do we make sure people are more aware of that process? You know, this is the thing, right? So some people, everything's high risk, right? Everything's, I'm the most important issue in this world, fix me now. But some people generally just need a check-in service from an external advocate, so someone that's not in their circle. So I need help, bang, bang, what's my check-in service? What's the resource? What's the self-care plan that I need to engage in over this period of time to maybe hopefully change things that are going through? Just because I've gone through a stressful experience doesn't mean I'm automatically I've got a mental illness, but I still need support. I still need to understand how I can be supported. So, it's you know, we have hundreds and hundreds of people who go throughout the year. We've got sort of visions of, of working some, you know, full-time employees to sort of navigate that whole process and counselling service and check-ins and through tech and all that sort of stuff, which, um, you know, we have a target uh, next year to have be able to service 10 to 12,000 people through a counselling check-in service and then escalate that as we move forward. So, life's... It's just challenging for a lot of people. But, you know, I'm never an expert like yourself when you talk about mental health advocates and, and, and people in the space. I'm not an expert, but I'm surrounded by people that are. Yeah. And, and make sure that uh, they're supported to do what they need to do. Uh, delivering mental health interventions at scale is the, that's the golden ticket for our time. Yep. You know, I think, you know, yep. there's so much help yep. that can be given one-on-one, but as you mentioned, two to four months is a long time to wait. So trying to find an intervention that can keep someone safe or at least get them on a slightly better pathway until they do get that time face-to-face, it's uh, that's the real key yeah. to, to this. And being able to be open to that through technology yeah. is the big one mm. because as much as we need human connection and we need to see people face-to-face, technology has come such a long way in our ability to serve that gap mm. okay you know and whether it be through surveys and check-ins and all sorts of stuff but you know having resource at hand to be able to do that you know so we're putting a ton of work and development and resources into making sure that people don't um, don't slip through the gap and working that through and, and governments we know you know the government's putting billions of dollars into the mental health system and trying to change things and make things better and you know that will come you know, and we'll see the benefits of that in years to come. You're not going to see the benefits of that next week. Yeah. But you just got to make sure that people are, are being supported and have the right resource and just feel safe, which is a big one. Yeah. Yes, you've walked from Sydney to Melbourne, but you also love to ride a bike. <laughs> I love to ride a bike. Yeah. Tell me about Ride With Me, this massive event that's happening across the weekend. I'm doing a ride on yeah. Halloween. I'm doing a virtual ride on Halloween. Just, I'm not Everesting. Uh, I'm not yes. Everesting. I've got, I've got two rides going on. I've got a 50K and a 20K. Tell me about Ride With Me. Why, why did you start it? The idea from the ride came from a couple of mates. They got the two guys that started Knights of Suburbia, uh, Russ and uh, Riggers, mates of mine that I played footy and, and with and against uh, as a junior. So they've been mates for a long time, connections for a long time. And and they saw the walk. So we have a March With Me event. So that Sydney to Melbourne is now escalated into a, a day event um, called March With Me. And they said, oh, can we, can we do a bike ride version? And this was 2015. And I said, oh, yeah, go nuts, do your thing, because uh, me and Lycra and bikes weren't any sort of relationship at all. So, yeah, go do your thing, perfect, let's go. And, you know, yeah, we had our first ride from Warrnambool to Melbourne, which is about a 420K ride, the way that we did it over three days. Solid. And taking some unbelievable scenery. We had about 22, I think, that did that. And then it sort of became a, a regular thing. And then COVID last year said, well, we can't do this in person. <laughs> What are we going to do? So we we come up with a model to say it's about choose your own adventure. 
and we believe that's also about it symbolizes the the journey that is mental health as well you gotta choose your own adventure choices are everything you want to be right so you know we did that last year we had 600 people across the world that took part in that that event which was amazing you know raised over three hundred thousand dollars and it was just it was awesome and for us as a small organization trying to do some good work it was a great experience to sort of put us in a position of, of carrying that that never alone message and I, I think when you know the power of the power of cycling is not about what you do by yourself it's actually why people do it is to do be with other people it opens up conversations you talk about it you feel safe apart from when you get hit by cars or magpies but it's you know a great experience, and I finally gave in to the guys, and they kept saying you've got to come, you've got to come on these events, you've got to join cycling, and I gave in two years ago now, and I gave myself six weeks to train for. We had a, a weekend ride, three hundred and twenty kilometers, and six and a half to seven thousand meter climbing over the two days, and trained my bum off over six weeks, and took part in that event. Little did I know that that first day. We rode and through Mary up to Marysville. It's a beautiful place, but we rode through snow and it was just berserk. Um, wow. And it was one of the worst experiences of my life at the time. But finishing it and coming out on the other side, it's just like um, it was it was awesome, amazing. Uh, so the, the ride with me is coming up. As I said, it's, uh, it's we've got over 500 people uh, currently registered, fundraising through, and it is choose your own adventure. Yeah. Like, and this is the thing. Got a, a guy in Queensland that's riding 250 kilometres a day for eight days, so he's not doing it over the weekend. I even got my son that's doing it, Alexander, who he set himself a target of riding 10 kilometres. And it is what it is, but the reason behind it is just to make sure that people are having conversations. It opens conversations. And this is what brand awareness and general awareness from these, ex- these events does, is it actually opens up safe conversations for people to have because we still live in a society that, to talk about mental health still is not as normal as saying, oh, I've got diabetes, I can't do this. Or I've got a broken arm, I can't do this. This is this sorts of things. But living with mental illness for, for a lot of people, and you make a big hoo-ha about it, what it actually does is it makes that person feel more alone through their situation. So we can actually normalise that language and process and behaviours that surround the mental health system. And as a system, I talk about my, me as a mental health system and you as a mental health system. We can normalise that process. People have those conversations easier. They feel more supported. They feel more inclusive. They feel safe. And we know that where people perform best is where they feel safest. You know, whether that's through the work that you do, you, you feel safe in your environment, you perform better. I myself, I feel safe in my position of what I do with the Love Me Love You or where I'm doing on my bike or where I'm in position in my, with my family. If I feel safe in that position, I, I perform better. And that's that's the idea for, the behind it, just to get people moving because I know you did the uh, you recently did the uh, the cycling economy report. Far uh, out, that, mate. That I was blown away. I was blown away. 4.6 million Australians will ride a bike this week. Yeah. That's a lot Crazy. of people riding bikes, you know. And the thing, and, and what's wild is like men who are nearly fifty in lycra, which is the that's the misconception. <laughs> that's the tiny, tiny percentage, a tiny percentage of people <laughs> who ride bicycles. Tiny yep. percentage. Yeah, and, and I think COVID brought that out a lot of people because that was our thing. You know, can my the the experience that we were able to have. Over these last eighteen months, with you know, my wife's got a bike, my my boys have got their bikes. That was our daily experience of freedom, right? Yeah, and, and doing that, and then I think it's a very powerful thing if you, you allow yourself to be a part of it. And you don't have to have the fanciest of bikes. You don't have to have your fifteen thousand dollar Trek or Pinarello, whatever they're called, and all these sorts of things. You just have to have something that gets you from A to B and allows you to be a part of the freedom that is. Yeah, and there's something psychologically so wonderful. Uh, There's research into it about what it is to actually move forward. You would have found that on your walk. There's a there's a form of therapy. Rush, I can't remember what it's called. They wave their fingers in front of your face, um, but it stimulate it stimulates <laughs> this part of your brain that gets activated from actual forward motion. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it's kind of, the wind in your face, having a chat. Come on, 
Yeah. It's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we talk about this a lot. It's about movement creates movement, right? Yeah. And even like if it uh, talks about conversation capacity, so your 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 thought process and your brain starts working through, if you've actually got movement, if you actually sit in your center place and in here and you actually think that that's going to create energy in your processes, it doesn't work. People that isolate, connect, disconnect, and sort of do nothing feel like crap. And that's just the way that it is. You create movement in what you do through, you know, walk and talks, you know, cycling, cycling conversations, you know, just chatting through the position to do that. You know, it's away from the physical exercise component where the easiest, safest place that people actually, two men can have a conversation is actually in a car. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's about this process of actually not actually looking at each other. Yeah. And eye contact is awkward for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. But sort of the more we can sort of understand that initial phase of not seeing eye contact and having those conversations and then actually being able to eyeball each other after that creates some more genuine experiences yeah, for a yeah. lot of people. I was once told, and one of the more powerful things I've been told over my time about these kind of conversations is that when it comes to men and women, there's a big difference in that men don't talk face to face, men talk shoulder to shoulder. And as long as you can. <laughs> organize whatever it is if you've got to have a conversation with someone figure something out like let's go for a walk let's go play golf let's ride a bike let's i've got to help help me chop this tree down whatever it is find something that the two of you can do together that's where the conversations happen and i think that comes from the 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 days of past where you know we talk about sort of being supporting each other through war and all that sort of stuff but you know you want to know that analogy is that i'm here Right side by side, we're going to do this together. Mm. It's a capacity. That, and we talk about people that men don't talk. But men do talk, right? And they do. We've just got different language. And it's different capacity to express and understand and, and, and be able to open it up. And we talk more black and white. It's not sort of filled with color and more sort of a great punctuation and all that sort of stuff. But it's that ability for us to understand. And I think this is the thing that my wife understood really well, really early was I was talking in my process. I don't, didn't elaborate too much onto everything that was going about, but what I said was listened to. And I think it's what we're people understand is that women and, and the society always talk about men, you've got to open up more, open up more. Yeah, you're allowed to open up, but you just need to understand that your capacity is I need to say what I need to say and I need to move on. And I believe that and I talk like that now as I know what I need to be said we can open up and we can go down different paths or conversation, but just listen to what I'm saying. Don't try and be your answer. Don't try and fill my judgment and don't try and be anything that it is. Just let me say what I need to say. If you've got a question, you don't understand what I'm saying, ask the question. But allow, allow, me to, allow me just to be. Lance, if people want to watch you do your Everest, how do they do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll be putting a thing out, obviously, we're doing some lives through the old yeah, Insta and uh, Facebook through our Love Me Love You page. So pushing through that. But if you are wanting to join and, and have a bit of fun uh, watching me sort of tongue it up the Alp uh, for nine times, which I think is going to take me about 14 hours with breaks because I've also got kids to look after and, and sort of family things to do as well. So I'm going to sort of mangle everything in there. But um, just looking on Zwift, it'll be uh, Lance Everest. So working through that. I'm looking forward to it. I, as I said, the challenges of life are opportunities. You're going to open yourself up to those opportunities. It's not a matter of if I complete this, it's about how I complete this. So I'm looking forward to it because uh, it's something I've put into my head that this is my, my another tick off my list. But, you know, the same thing as I have every day. Every day is a challenge. But trying to to cycle in there. But I've got, I've got the grouse set up. Got the uh, the big TV. It'll be playing the NBA or the NFL or something on the <laughs> on the background. Uh, I'll be watching some uh, bachelorette reruns or something like that, mate. It's um, it's uh, working through that. And then I think the best part for me for this experience, uh, which will be happening with my Everest, is my kids will see it. So my my oldest comes and sits, you know, on the bench next to me, and, and you know, obviously watches the, the the sport that I'm watching, whatever it is, but talks to me while I'm, while I'm doing it. And that's the legacy that we talk about leaving with our lives is, is that role modeling behavior and, and sort of seeing that. And they don't see us sort of, as I said, sitting and having barbecues and drinking and, and sort of falling over and making all these silly choices because they're such sponges. They know the, the importance of how we 
talk, how we have conversations, how we need to do our exercise. And as I say to my three-year-old, Lenny, as I said, what's your strongest muscle? And he says, your brain. And it is. It's not about how big your biceps are, how many abs you got, all that sort of stuff, which aesthetically, all that sort of things that work, but it's your brain. And you got to allow that to be. Right? So, yeah. Amazing, Lance. Look forward to it. Absolute legend to have you on the show, mate. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, over those 14 hours, I'll definitely find some time to come and shadow you up that hill, mate. Yeah, yeah much appreciative. So, and I'll, uh, the, the thing is, mate, I'll be backing up. Uh, I'm actually joining your uh, oh, you are? The, uh, Halloween ride. Oh, yeah, amazing. Joining the Halloween ride. So, oh, that'll be sick. Yeah, it would be interesting. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> I've got a 20K, mate. It's just, there's a 20K, like zero to one water kilo. You just jump, you know, it was super yeah, yeah, easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the thing. So like I've worked it out that I'll probably expel about eight and a half to 9,000 calories on the Saturday. Oh, that's a lot of eating. Trying to work through that. And then, uh, but uh, yeah, any opportunity to be able to uh, join you on the Zwift, mate, and have a, have a ride and, and see what it's all about and, and listen to the hot hot dub time machine. That's uh, <laughs> yeah. what it's about, right? Tom, Hot Dub Time Machine's our DJ, and uh, he's going to be doing it from a hotel room in Darwin. <laughs> yeah, he's he's on tour. Of all places. Oh, yeah, Tom's yeah. on tour, so he's going to sort it out. It's going to be a great ride. It's going to be fun. It's uh, going to be a good, we'll be be a good chat. It, but it's not about what happens just for the event as well, Osha. It's about, um, you know, for us with the nicest suburbia and the work that has been done in this space, you know, there are thousands of members of call across the country who was representing and spreading the Never Alone message. You know, everyone's got different messages, but I think that's the big thing for us. People need to know that we're we're here together, right? Yeah. You might feel like you're the only person in the world dealing with your crap and your challenges, but you've got to allow people in. And we're here to help as much as anybody else. And if you want some help, let us in. So, yeah. There it is, Lance. Enjoy the rest of your training, mate, and uh, and thanks for your time. I'll see you on the out, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks, Osha. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Lance Piccioni, the CEO of the Love Me, Love You Foundation, riding his real bike up a virtual Mount Everest. He's going to do that on the 30th of October. The next day, I'm riding a 50K. You can join me for that or a 20K, which is also a part of that ride. I'd love to see you there. Just keep an eye on my socials for, for more details about those rides. If not, join us on the Twitch stream. I'll tell you more about that through the week, but it'd be absolutely great if you could support and get behind Lance. You can support him through his Instagram. You'll find the link to everything he does. Lance, L-A-N-C-E underscore P-I-C-I-O-A-N-E. It's just good to have a good sobriety talk with someone. I miss that, being able to have a good, you know, kind of face-to-face long-form chat about the decisions you make and the choices you make when you're in those states of mind influenced by drugs and alcohol. It was a good reminder. I'm really grateful that I had Lance on the show. If anything in that conversation did bring issues up for you, please do talk to your GP if you need to talk to someone right now. Lifeline 13 11 14. Thank you so much to all the people that helped me make that show. Bree Steele on research and production support, Andy Marr, my audio producer, and of course the executive producer of my life, uh, the woman that really runs the executive function part of my world, Rachel Barrett. You are the best. And Toe Hider, who made all the music. I'll see you on Wednesday. Got a good one for you. A good quickie on Wednesday. Um, Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.